Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Here I am. Stand with me, please. Open your Bibles to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria, so he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Father, we thank you that we can come before your presence again and study your word. So many different needs are represented in this congregation today, God. And uh, only you can meet those needs. And we all know that. I pray that today in some way you would speak to every heart here. And draw us closer to yourself. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Listen to this piece of tongue-in-cheek humor that I found that was poking fun at the fact that we live in a very needy culture. It begins, Hello. Welcome to the Psychiatric Hotline. If you are obsessive-compulsive, please press 1 repeatedly. If you are codependent, please ask someone else to press 2. If you have multiple personalities, please press 3, 4, 5, and 6. If you are paranoid delusional, we know who you are and we know what you want. Just stay on the line so we can trace the call. If you are schizophrenic, listen carefully, and a little voice will tell you which number to press. And finally, if you're a manic depressive, it doesn't matter which number you press. No one will answer you anyway. We are a society that is coming to grip with its neediness, even though often people will try to meet those needs in an unhealthy manner. Regardless, many people are ready to admit that they need help. 
but we still have a problem. It's a problem of priorities. Which need is most important? How can we place the essential issues over the less vital ones unless we can identify them as such? The old adage of the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing is true. But so often, that's where we fail. Now, Jesus was good at that. He always seemed to move his life carefully around a fixed set of spiritual priorities. He was on a definite time schedule as he went on his way to the cross to pay for the sins of the world. Yet, in every situation, he was able to master all the personal elements in order to keep focused on the main concern at hand. In every encounter that Jesus had with people, we find that he knew his priorities. We're going to be given a magnificent example of that in the next few weeks as we follow his conversation with the Samaritan woman. Look at verse 1 with me. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples... As they had done with John, the Jewish authorities viewed Jesus with suspicion. Why? Because he too proclaimed the kingdom of God, called for repentance, and baptized through his disciples those who repented. We're going to see in chapter 4 that the Lord ministers to a variety of people. We will see him minister to the sinful Samaritan woman, his own disciples, the many Samaritans who trusted in him, and finally, at the end of the chapter, a nobleman in his household. What did these people all have in common? Really, just only about one thing, and that was faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. John was fulfilling the purpose of his gospel in showing his readers the various kinds and classes of people that came to believe in Jesus as the Son of God. In the upcoming weeks, we will meet various individuals and discover how their faith began, how it grew, and what it did for them and others. Verse 3, please. He left Judea again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. What is interesting here is where it says he left Judea and departed to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. Now follow what John is doing here. Jesus is seen in Jerusalem at the beginning of chapter 3. He is seen in Judea in the middle of chapter 3. And now he is seen in Samaria. Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. Does this sound familiar at all? It should. This is the exact same pattern Jesus gave his disciples in the book of Acts. This is Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in both Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. Jesus is modeling for them a later commandment that he is going to be giving them. Verse 4 says Jesus needed to go through Samaria. Now this was not entirely true in a physical sense. Allow me to explain. 
At this point in history, Israel was divided into three regions. Judea in the south, Galilee in the north, and Samaria in the middle. When a Jew wanted to go from Judea to Galilee, the most direct route led through Samaria. But good Jews would never go that way. They would go through Perea on the other side of the Jordan River. Why? Because there was such tension between the Samaritans and the Jews, the Jews uttered the word Samaritan only as a curse word. Now, why were the Samaritans so despised? Let me give us a little historical background. I think it will make a lot more sense to us. In the year 722 B.C., the Assyrians invaded Israel from the north and carried the majority of the people from the ten northern tribes into captivity. The Lord allowed the ruthless Assyrians to capture the northern kingdom because of Israel's rebellion against him. Now, what you may not know is that the Assyrians were some of the most brutal, vicious, and sadistic people that ever lived. There are many examples revealing Assyrian severity. Case in point, a captured king was taken to the capital and compelled like an animal to pull the royal chariot of triumph. But it's way worse than that. If they didn't kill their enemies, rings were put through their lips or noses. They would then thread a rope through them like a bunch of fish and lead them around that way. Or if they were in a particular malevolent mood, hands, feet, noses, and eyes would all be cut off. And often they were blinded and their tongues were torn from their mouths. Prisoners were often skinned alive and then set on fire. Their skins were also hung near enemy gates in order to collect tribute. I'll give you a Bible verse to back this up. 2 Chronicles 33.11 So the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. Now the Assyrians also had an interesting way in dealing with conquered nations. The method of the Assyrians was this. When they conquered a people, they would remove almost entirely the native population. They would then transport them to another part of their kingdom and then bring a foreign population to the land that they conquered. And that would have the destabilizing effect of whatever foreign government had just taken over. And so they took the vast majority of the Jews and transplanted them somewhere else. And so they were hoping to just breed Judaism out of existence. By doing this, they knew that whatever Jews were left, were left would most likely marry non-Jews. And the marriages that took place between the Assyrians and the Jews produced the Samaritans, who were half-breeds in the eyes of the Jews. The Samaritans were a mixed race, part Jew and part Gentile, that grew out of the Assyrian captivity of the northern tribes rejected by the Jews because they could not prove their genealogy, the Samaritans established their own temple and religious services on Mount Gerizim. Of course, this only fanned the fires of prejudice. 
When his enemies wanted to call Jesus an insulting name later in John 8:48, they called him a Samaritan. This is the New Testament equivalent of saying your mother wears army boots. I'm not sure what that means. I just know Bugs Bunny used to say it, and it was an insult. But barred from the temple, the Samaritans built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. And although they still believe in the Pentateuch, which were the first five books of Moses, they changed all the stories. The Garden of Eden was on Mount Gerizim. Noah's Ark landed on Mount Gerizim. And Abraham offered Isaac on, you guessed it, Mount Gerizim. So as Jesus heading north to Galilee said, I'm going straight through Samaria. Why? Because there was a divine appointment waiting for him there. Now let's keep in mind that the Jews and the Samaritans have been hating each other for over 700 years. The people are firmly entrenched in both of their camps in the hatred of each other. And what does Jesus do in so divided a situation? He goes to the Jew, and then he goes to the Samaritan. The intriguing thing to me is that when Jesus goes into this area, he doesn't go alone. But he also takes his 12 very Jewish, very bigoted, and very nationalistic disciples with him in order to teach them that he is truly the savior of the entire world and the lover of all mankind. Now these were the same Samaritans that James and John asked Jesus if he wanted them to call down fire from heaven to napalm their city when they refused to welcome them. Listen to this account in Luke chapter 9. When the days were approaching for his ascension, Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. When his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Now these are tough disciples. I can imagine them wearing leather robes and sporting a mohawk. <laughs> so Jesus takes these men, despite this centuries-old systemic and generational hatred and prejudice, he brushes all of that aside, and he deliberately walks right into the middle of it. Verse 5, please. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Why would the Bible make the point that Jesus meets her at Jacob's well? If you remember from your Old Testament... When Abraham wanted a bride for Isaac, he sent out a servant who ended up waiting by a well where he met Isaac's future bride, Rebekah. Later, Jacob gets kicked out of the land and goes to Mesopotamia where he goes to a well and God brings to him his future wife, 
Rachel. Moses gets kicked out of Egypt and goes to Sinai, and once again, at a well, he finds his wife, Zipporah. The well is the place where the patriarchs found their bride, and now in our text this morning, Jesus is at the well, and here he will meet the first of what will comprise the Gentile branch of the bride of Christ. What would you expect her to look like, this bride of Christ? You might imagine Jesus would pick the most pure and moral woman on the face of the earth. Instead, we're going to see that the woman that Jesus chooses is a five-time divorcee who has now relegated herself to living the rest of her life in fornication. Also want us to notice in verse 6 that we are told that Jesus was weary from his journey. Hebrews 2.11 says, Jesus was made like unto his brethren, like you and me. That means he knows what it's like to feel weary and exhausted. I'm glad about that. Because I feel that way not infrequently, and I bet you do also. The battles rage. The problems mount. The struggles continue. And we just feel fatigued. Yet it's often at the point when we are weary and feeling weak that we will be used to the greatest degree by God. Verse 7, please. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Let's contrast this fourth chapter of John with John chapter 3. We could say that John chapter 4 is the mirror inverse of John chapter 3. In John 3, Jesus talked to a religious man named Nicodemus. In John 4, he talked to an immoral woman whose name is not even given. In John 3, Nicodemus is a calm contemplator. In John 4, the woman is a fiery debater. In John 3, Jesus speaks to Nicodemus in the cool of the night. In John 4, Jesus speaks to the woman in the heat of the day. In John 3, Nicodemus initiates the conversation. In John 4, Jesus begins the dialogue by asking the woman for a drink. So it's difficult to imagine a greater contrast between two persons than between the important and sophisticated Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews, and the simple, sinful Samaritan woman. He was a Jew. She was a Samaritan. He was a Pharisee. She belonged to no religious party. He was a politician. She had no status whatsoever. He was a scholar. She was uneducated. He was highly moral. She was immoral. He had a name. She is nameless. He was a man. She was a woman. He came at night. She came at noon. Nicodemus came seeking. The woman was sought by Jesus. I said all that to let us see what a great contrast this is. Yet the point of the stories is that both the man and the woman needed the gospel and were welcome to it. If Nicodemus is an example 
of the truth that no one can rise so high as to not need salvation, the woman is an example of the truth that no one can seek so low. Thus, it is by no means an accident that John has placed these two wonderful stories together at the beginning of the gospel. And that they will end in verse 42 with a Samaritan statement that this man really is the Savior of the world. Let me ask you, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? If you do not, you should learn that the gospel is as much for you as it is for anyone. And that you need it and I need it as much as the respected Nicodemus or the immoral woman of Samaria. I love the keen insight of James Montgomery Boyce here. He writes, What a picture of Jesus. Here was a Jesus who was not wearied merely by the heat. He could have stayed in the cooler area of the Jordan. Here was a Jesus who was wearied in his search for sinners and had become thirsty seeking those to whom he was to offer the water of life. On the same errand, he would one day experience an even greater thirst on the cross. If she could have just seen what Jesus saw, she would have glimpsed another noonday, when the sun would mourn in blackness, and this same stranger crowd from a Roman cross, I thirst. She would have seen him in the shadow of a great rock in a weary land, the smitten Christ from whom the living waters flow. He was thirstier than she knew. He was speaking for the very heart of God. He was moving in the travail of his soul and looked for satisfaction in the restoration of this sin-scarred woman. That is fabulous insight from Mr. Boyce. But there is another picture in the first verses of John 4. The one picture is of a wearied Christ. The second is of the woman. As a Samaritan, she had undoubtedly had many opportunities to return the hatred of the Jews for the Samaritans by hating the Jews in return. Perhaps she'd even had a taste of their hostility a few minutes before meeting Jesus that day. Think about it. She was probably coming down the hill at the same time that Peter and the disciples had gone up. And I would guess at this stage of their lives, that Peter and the others would have never moved off that path for any woman, much less a Samaritan and one with loose morals at that. Perhaps she had been, made to, had been pushed aside or made to wait while the disciples marched on by. One last point is Jesus. The one who fed 5,000 on a hillside by the Sea of Galilee with a few loaves and fishes the one who fed 4,000 shortly thereafter, the one who is the provider of all good gifts, not only was tired and thirsty, he was also hungry. And what does he do? He sends his disciples into the town to pick up some food. That sounds very mundane and ordinary, doesn't it? And that's my point. You'll never once see Jesus perform a miracle solely to satisfy his own need, desire, or hunger. Turn these stones into bread, Satan taunted, after Jesus had fasted 40 days in the wilderness. 
But Jesus refused to do that. And this causes me to analyze my own prayers and consider how often I make requests of the Lord purely for my own selfish satisfaction versus how often I pray for the needs of others and the glory of the kingdom. Verse 9, please. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. This woman already had two strikes against her. She was a Samaritan and she was a woman. You see, in Jesus' day, rabbis refrained from talking to women in public to such an extent if someone saw even his own wife on the street, they would not acknowledge her. That is why this Samaritan woman is so shocked by Jesus' request. That's another thing you do not do. Jews do not drink after Samaritans. It's like back in the 1950s where you had white water fountains and black water fountains. You had white swimming pools and black swimming pools. So put yourself in the place of this woman. She cannot believe a Jewish man is speaking to her in the middle of the day, and she lets him know about it. And in one sentence, she encapsulates 700 years of history for him by saying, how can you ask me a drink? She is saying, don't you know we're supposed to hate each other? Now, we might think, how could you not possibly be blown away by talking to Jesus? I mean, he was probably glowing with a halo over his head. Surely just one look at him, and you would know you were talking to the very Son of God, right? What I'm about to say may upset some of you, but please hear me out. Jesus seemingly has the most recognizable face in the entire world. In pictures and movies, he has long brown hair, a well-trimmed beard, and great teeth. <laughs> he speaks with a British accent, and his robe has a blue sash, just like Miss America. But here's the thing. The New Testament writers never once describe what Jesus looks like. His physical appearance was unimportant to them. This is the part that may upset you. There is, however, an Old Testament passage that does describe, at least in general terms, what Jesus would look like. This is Isaiah 53.2. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. There is no beauty that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Based partly on this, early Christian thinkers like Tertullian and Justin Martyr believed that Jesus to be maybe physically unattractive. And I personally think they're probably right. A second century figure named Celsius described Jesus as ugly and small, much the same way Paul the Apostle is described. 
Some scholars believe it's possible there was something wrong with physical, his physical appearance that needed fixing. That sounds just like him if you ask me. Is it possible that in a world that often worships beauty over God, that Jesus knew what it was like to be unattractive? It is at least possible that in his very physical appearance, he was saying to the world, be careful about judging things or people too quickly. Amen. If you only see what's on the surface, Amen. you will be deceived. But if you want to find out what's truly beautiful, you're going to have to look for it. Verse 10, please. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Jesus had a way of masterfully reaching the people with whom he shared. To the woman at the well, he spoke of living water. To the aging Nicodemus, he talked about being born again. To the blind man, he will identify himself as the light of the world. To sisters grieving the death of their brother, he will be the resurrection and the life. And to the fisherman, he offered an invitation to become fishers of men. No matter who we are or what we do, only Jesus can truly satisfy. And one of the reasons people are never truly satisfied is because I think they are drinking out of the wrong well, which we will look at next week. But here's what we need to know. The more that we drink out of the wrong well for our satisfaction, the thirstier we will become. Why is that? Because God has created us with a hunger and a thirst that only He can satisfy. And if we try to satiate that in any other way, it's like drinking ocean water. It may satisfy your thirst momentarily, but because of the salt content, it will actually make you thirstier, and in the end, it will kill you. Now, in Jewish speech, the phrase living water meant water that was flowing like in a river or a stream, as opposed to water that is stagnant, as in a cistern or a well, and living water is considered to be better. I think it's fascinating at this point that the Lord's reply has now turned the tables on this woman. When the conversation began, he was the thirsty one, and she the one with the water. Now he spoke as if she was the thirsty one, and he was the one with the water. The great thing is, that offer is still available this morning. All we have to do is, is simply accept the gift that Christ is offering. In closing, 22-year-old Francesca Renderos was working as a waitress on an ordinary Wednesday night in Houston when she was stunned by grace. At one of the tables sat Doug Brown, a mortgage broker, trying to attract the business of six female real estate agents. When Francisca came to the table, Doug asked, what would be the most special tip I could give you? A pair of shoes? A purse? She responded, no, I need a car. Doug looked around the table at the six real estate agents and said, 
If you will give me your business, I will give this girl a car. The sixth woman agreed. So he turned to Francesca and said, okay, you got yourself a car. Her response was one of doubt and annoyance. She replied, sure. Now what do you want to drink? (laughs) She didn't believe it until an hour later when a brand new silver Mitsubishi Lancer pulled up and Doug Brown gave her the keys. Francesca could hardly contain herself. Is this happening? What do I say? What do I do? Doug gave her the word. You say, these keys are mine. And just like that, my beloved, Jesus has offered everyone in this room the keys to eternal life. And all we have to do is accept them and say with great gratitude, these keys are mine. We'll come back next week and we'll continue following this conversation. Lord, we do thank you. You have done everything for us. You have been nothing but faithful and kind my whole life. And I pray, Father, reveal yourself in whatever way you need to every heart represented in this room. We ask in Christ's name, amen.